I do like that idea of playing on all 88 keys. You know, we 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 have a certain uh, uh, diction when we're when we're talking to our boss. We have a certain diction when we're talking to our lover. We have a certain diction when we're talking to a child. When we're talking to uh, the, the the grocer, you know. So we move between um, the formal academic and the uh, and the colloquial and the slang and 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 I feel like. Um, uh, you should be able to use all of these tonalities, you know. I have a special, special treat for everyone today. And I told you I was going to have something big for you. And I do. I'm sitting in the Brooklyn home of the renowned Philip Lopate. Thank you. Well, happy to have you here, Keisha. Um, And you guys know I always talk about the new school. And um, I was in... Professor Lopate's nonfiction workshop back around 2010, 2011, and you're now at Columbia University, correct? That's correct, yes. So what today, I'm so excited that you agreed to talk to me, invite me into your home, and I think that our listeners are going to hopefully be able to get something valuable from dissecting this second book, not the second book, but the book that came out at the beginning of this year, around January, February? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. A Mother's Tale. A Mother's Tale, yes. Okay. Uh, so I have a lot of questions. Um, I'll try to go in order, but we also want to talk about some writing advice that you can give people. Absolutely. Um, so I guess I'd like to start with, what is the best and the worst piece of writing advice that you've gotten? That I've gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll start with the worst advice, which is give it up. You're never going to get anywhere. Wow. Uh, I remember uh, uh, being told, uh, I worked at the Metropolitan Museum as a museum guard, and this other guard said, well, if you, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a, I want to be a great writer or a good writer. He said, well, if you want to be good, you'll never be good. He was a Buddhist, and everything had to be like paradoxical. And um, you will meet uh, various people along the way who are naysayers and who, who tell you, you know, to give it up, you know. Uh, and so that was my worst advice. And, uh, and um, my best advice um, was keep doing what you're doing, you know. Um, it's interesting because I began as a fiction writer and a poet. And at a certain point, um, when I was in my... 30s, I, I fell upon the essay and nonfiction in general. And uh, I started writing essays, basically taking some of my fiction training and some of my poetry training and, and merging them into the essay form because the essay form can be associational like poetry and it, it can have a narrative like fiction. So a lot of my friends who were fiction writers said, Keep doing this, you know. I didn't know whether they were saying that, meaning get off of my territory, uh, you go over there, <laughs> or no, this is something you can do. But I did feel a natural affinity for the form. So the, so persisting was really the best advice I ever got. Hmm. And I want to, I'll, I'll probably make a comment and save this for later, but speaking of the natural affinity for the form, one of the questions... I want to ask you, talk to you about is your direct address to the reader yes. and how it seems so natural and 
I wanted to ask you, what was the process like for you in developing that capacity to speak to the reader like that? When did you recognize that you had that and how did you develop it? I, I read a lot of um, 19th century literature uh, when I was in college and after. And, and, and one of the uh, devices of a lot of 19th century writers is to talk to the reader, like Dostoevsky and Notes from Underground, uh, you know, or Melville and, and Bartleby the Scrivener. And um, I always liked that sort of um, um, off-the-cuff quality uh, of establishing a relationship with the reader. So I thought, that, I thought it was a way of being playful. And one of the things that, that, that I relied on again and again in my writing is is to be mischievous or to be playful in some way. Uh, so the direct address to the reader, partly because it was seen as something that was um, uh, antiquated and you couldn't do it anymore, provoked me into thinking, well, I'd like to try it again, you know. And I did like all these 18th century writers like Fielding and 19th century writers uh, who were doing it. Uh, so... I, I came to the conclusion that the tradition of the essay was a conversation between the writer and the reader, that there was something innately conversational about it. In part, it was a conversation with your own mind. You're trying to track your thoughts. You're trying to figure out uh, what you think about something. And in part, it's a, it's a conversation with the reader. Uh, and I thought um, that... There's a, there's a quality of uh, a kind of stop-start quality where you are talking to the reader, you know, just as you're just as you're going along, you you pull yourself up short, and you anticipate the reader's objections. Like uh, I know you're probably thinking that I'm an asshole now, or whatever, you know. Um, so that that sense of anticipating and then addressing and and cutting the reader off at the pass is something that interested me, showing that you're aware. Of, of, of the dangers you're in and the game you're playing. Uh, it's taking the reader in into uh, the process and making the reader complicit with you in a way. So for instance, if you, if you, if you put a challenge to yourself uh, on the page, like, um, I wonder what this all means, you know, or um, that may be very well and all good, but how does it connect to my original thesis? Uh, you're really... Uh, challenging yourself to fail in front of the reader's eyes and so it becomes a kind of suspense how is this guy going to pull this off you know so all of that all of that means that uh, you're engaging the reader more directly it's not the same as as fiction where uh, you encourage the reader sometimes to enter a dream and and to go along as if it's really happening you're you're talking at the reader's um, sleeves and you're 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 jabbing the reader sometimes and you're you're, you're waking him out of that dream but you're also uh, making him, you know, be part of your conversation. Sometimes it's as simple as just uh, using colloquial expressions or things like that. And that's actually one of the first things, I think I probably made this note in um, the, the portrait... Uh, my inside my head. Portrait Inside My Head, your book yeah. of essays. Yes. That in one, in like the same sentence or the same paragraph, you'll use words like mawkish or schmaltzy and then you'll say something that's totally colloquial and yeah. it's just like mm -hmm. it it um I I I I enjoyed that aspect when you said about the colloquial. Right. It it's just your writing style 
intrigued me because you could just switch up sort of like that. I'm glad you picked up on that because I, 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 do, I do like that idea of playing on all 88 keys. You know, we, we, we have a certain uh, uh, diction when we're, when we're talking to our boss. We have a certain diction when we're talking to our lover. We have a certain diction when we're talking to a child, when we're talking to uh, the, the, the grocer, you know. So we move between um, the formal academic and the, uh, and the colloquial and the slang. And, 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 and I feel like um, uh, y- you should be able to use all of these tonalities, you know. Uh, not just speak in one register. So it's, it's again, it's fun to be able to, to shift gears from one register to another. And it makes you more trustworthy as, as a narrator because they see there's a human being there, not just a kind of a stuffed shirt, let's say. Mm-hmm. That shifting gears process, is that something that you now comes naturally to you when you're writing? Or is it something that you go back and look at on revision? I would say that it, it it comes fairly naturally because what's happening is that I'm uh, I'm taking dictation from my brain, so I'm not actually forcing my thoughts. I'm kind of like uh, uh, relaxing enough to invite my thoughts, and sometimes those thoughts speak to me colloquially, and sometimes they speak formally. Let's go back to the reader for a second. Yes. Do you envision a particular reader when you are writing, or is the ideal reader yourself, or you're writing more or less for yourself? I would say both, you know. Uh, In part, I'm writing for myself to amuse myself. So um, if I read something that I've written and I can laugh or chuckle afterwards, and I think, okay, it's good. but I'm also writing for uh, for a variety of readers. Uh, one reader I'm writing for is somebody who is more intelligent than I am, but I hope forgiving and will understand what I'm trying to do. Uh, it's like writing for the great dead, you know. They're watching me, Hazlitt and Lamb uh, and, and Montaigne. They're up there and Virginia Woolf, and they're saying, well, you know, the guy is trying. Give him a break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm trying to write um, for my um, ancestors, you might say. And, and, and I do think that one of the aspects of, 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 of essay writing um, that I've noticed is it kind of, um, it's, it's kind of imprinted with, with, um, with writing from the past. So that the way that you show, one of the ways that you show that you're a real essayist is that you, you exhibit traces of, 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 of the tradition, you know. You show that you've read uh, all the stuff, that you're not inventing the, the wheel. Um, so even sometimes I like to have uh, diction that's a little archaic or anachronistic, you know, as well as contemporary. Um, so that reader, that reader is, let's say, a reader from the past, okay? And then, of course, there's, there's, there's the contemporary reader, and, and I have to be aware... Uh, that the contemporary reader may may, um, may have certain uh, ethical concerns, and so if I'm going to go against those ethical concerns or say something that's provoking, I have to know that I'm saying something provoking. It's not that I always have to stay within the so-called politically correct range, but I have to know when I'm going outside of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that that's where the address to the reader really comes in, is when you're 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 moving outside of um, uh, 
a conventional position than trying to be a contrarian or trying to challenge to bring something new to the discussion. What tips do you have for an essayist that would be looking to develop that technique? Well, I do think uh, reading a lot of uh, of, um, of great essayists, you know, um, steeping yourself in, in, in the tradition of the essay. Um, and then I think that that's part of it. But then I also think that in terms of bravery or courage or developing new thoughts, um, to be to be able to know when you think differently from everybody else, you know. Um, you know what your peer group is saying, but you suspect that you, you that, that you don't quite agree. Um, so you have to be able to to listen to your um, your your inner voice, your intuitions, your inclinations, your prejudices, and work with them. You know, uh, so that you're not just uh, spouting the conventional line. Uh, and and what it really comes down to is being attentive to your own ambivalences, you know. So on any issue you can take, um, you know, uh, uh, war, abortion, uh, um, uh, taxes, anything like that, you know, um, try to figure out what you actually think, not what you think you should think. Hmm. And that reminds me of something that you discuss in A Mother's Tale, the hmm. latest book, yeah. where you, um, the book is built on this dialogue between you and your mom and it's actually from an interview that you did with her before she died yeah. and you during one of the parts where you're talking about the relationship with um her and your father you talk about that it is you're probably siding with him yes. because <laughs> you're male right and so just stepping back and acknowledging that and when you said that as a reader, I, I'm a female, and I was like, yeah, I can, because I was on her side. Like, right. wait a minute. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's actually, if you if you want to use a word that doesn't exist, a trialogue, because it's it's my mother uh, and I talking, and then it's me now talking to the two of them, you know, and sort of uh, um, analyzing 30 years later uh, what it what it all, how it, how it strikes me, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I think that I think that's true. Um, uh, but what was your question? <laughs> uh, I don't. I think I just had a comment that mm -hmm. I just noticed that you um, you you did that with the reader about being aware of yes. what the limitations were. Exactly. Yeah. Because I really, I really, I really was taking the position in that book as elsewhere that that. Um, we can't we can't know the whole truth. We we we're, we're coming from a subjective place, uh, and uh, we 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 should acknowledge what our what our limitations are and what our um, distortions of vision are. You know, um, so I was I was trying to do that, and I was also trying to uh, to get my mother to to move off of her position, you know, to kind of gentle her into a greater acceptance of my father, um, which wasn't going to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, a, that, that was an interesting uh, project for me because it was, it was different from any that I'd ever done, you know. I'd written about my family before. Uh, and in a way, whenever you write about, about people 
uh, close to you. You always are uh, in danger of, um, let's say, um, exploiting them or making it into your story, uh, distorting them. And, um, you know, there's that whole ethics of writing about other people. Uh, and, and so I thought, when I came up, started to listen to the tapes again, 30 years later, I thought, first of all, hey, this is good material. Uh, and I had to trust my instincts as somebody who had been writing for a long time uh, to to go with this material. And then I thought, you know, this is a chance to to get all that hairy, raw, um, messy stuff out there instead of cleaning it up, instead of um, necessarily uh, um, putting it all through the sieve of the orthoil uh, narrative, you know. In other words, instead of my treating my mother as a character, I was going to let her have her say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to get at greater reality on the page. And, of course, when you, when you write essays, you're, it's, an essay is kind of like an aria or a song. You're making it into your song. But this time I thought, okay, it's not just going to be my song. It's going to be her song too, you know. I'm going to let her, let her say it the way she she sees it, you know. Um, and then and then, I think that readers will go back and forth between sympathizing with her, sympathizing with me, sympathizing with my father, you know. And that's that that's what to me makes it alive. Mm-hmm. The book I noticed for the first half of the book, or maybe. I don't want to say the first two thirds, but maybe shortly after the first half, it's more her telling the story. Right. And then it switches to a point where you and her mm-hmm. are dialoguing more and you're kind of pushing back or asking her questions. Oh, what was this? And ultimately, like? it leads to this argument where we're actually mm-hmm. having it all yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. So was that a conscious decision as far as when you would allow yourself to come in? Um, the well, the old, the younger self to come in on the page and do this dialogue with her. Were you building up to that argument? When you say was it a conscious decision, I think it came out of the dynamic of our relationship, which is that uh, my mother was a great talker uh, and something of a monologist, you know. Um, and and so I grew up listening to her. Uh, and then at a certain point, I would become impatient and think, hey, I want to get a word in here, you know. Um, so at the beginning... Uh, I just thought my my mission was to get her to tell her story, you know. Um, but then, but then um, I I started to see if I could divert her a little bit, get her to see it a different way. She, my mother, my mother was 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 very bright, um, but she also uh, would cling to her version of things, which was basically that everybody did her wrong, you know. Um, mm-hmm. She got the dirty end of the stick, and so on. Um, so at a certain point, I started, I started talking to back, and then, and then ultimately it led to what I regard as this argument, in which I tried to get her to say what it was that she didn't trust me. You know, wh- why was she so wary of me? Um, and and basically, it was this 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 complaint that she felt I didn't love her enough. Uh, I, 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 usually it's a complaint that is unanswerable. You really can't answer that. No matter what you say, you're kind of like in quicksand, you know. Um, but I thought, okay, let's let's give her a chance to to uh, 
to uh, vent her, her complaint against me. Um, and then I would also retaliate, you know. Mm -hmm. I would say what it was that I felt was, was unfair, you know. And essentially she, she accused me of, um, of being clinical, detached, and of, and of, uh, of using her as material. Um, but, but the whole clinical detached thing was, was a, um, a defense that I had developed in childhood uh, against this um, uh, tsunami of, uh, <laughs> of verbiage that was coming from her, you know, <laughs> and coming from some of the other members of my family. So I developed, as, as often the writer is in the family, the writer may be uh, the watchful one, the one who doesn't talk that much, the one who's not quite as extroverted mm -hmm. as siblings and so on, you know. Uh, so, I, so in a way, I developed this kind of uh, uh, stepping back personality, you know, which I think is also important in teaching. You can't just be a monologuist. You have to be able to listen to your students. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how you crafted the book. So other than the transcription, which yeah. probably might have been the hardest part, was that the hardest part of the book, the transcription? <laughs> the transcription was 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 not necessarily hard, but it was it was breathtaking because there were times when she would say things and I think, oh my God, really? And I'd stop the tape. I had one of these uh, cassette tape recorders and I could push the knob and, and then I'd stop and I'd, and I'd sit there just sort of like uh, taking it all in, you know, and then I'd start again. Um, and of course it was eerie to hear the voice of this woman who was dead, you know, filling the room mm -hmm. completely articulately um so it was a, it was it was very satisfying to get my mother back in that sense you know um it, but it was also uh, at times it, at times it made me cringe um but i didn't i didn't use all the material on the tapes i i had to shape it um and some of it i cut out uh, in other words i used her language i didn't use my own language but i didn't use all of her language uh, and then I started seeing it as chapters, if you will, episodes. Um, so I started shaping it. And then I, I, I had to employ some diplomacy. I didn't want my current voice to swamp hers uh, and to be this sort of uh, analytical smarty pants or know-it-all, you know. Um, so I had, to, I had to figure out a way to filter in uh, a more um, reflective, analytical voice uh, to, to, to pick my spots, you might say. Uh, I couldn't just say every... I couldn't just um, counter everything she said with a comment of mine. And believe me, I fantasized at one point, you know, having footnotes or having it in two columns and all these kind of uh, mm -hmm. um, orthographical, uh, uh, typographical ways of doing it. But in the end, I just did it the way I did it, which was as a continuous narrative interrupted by uh, passages where I would comment. Um, so they, that would also allow me to um, to be amused, you know, to to kind of be wry and to to in a way make fun of some of it, you know, like like when she she thinks that we could have all that the family could have picked up and gone to Israel, and maybe my father would have been a no. general. And I thought, no, no way is my father <laughs> going to be a general in the Israeli army, you know. So that was a chance for me to to have a laugh in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and since she was so uh, filled with her own um, uh, rage and conviction, if you will, I, I I wanted to to lighten it up, 
sometimes, you know, with 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 my with with the analytical voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to I had to kind of track the emotion, um, and I and I had to structure it as you say in such a way that that I would be more um, on an equal basis with her, um, and then to grow the 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 flow blow paid now voice, you know. Um, and, and, and I think that, that part of what was what was fascinating to me was that it felt like real life and that uh, it wasn't going to have this um, oh, falling into each other's arms moment. Where we're, you know, in families, usually um, you don't have that moment, you know, uh, or you have it, and then you go on and, and it all goes back. I remember when, when I sort of had a moment with my father, you know, and... and and it seemed like, oh, we, we we resolved everything, and it was all very loving. And then he went on and lived for several years and became just as annoying as he'd ever been. <laughs> so, so, you know, this is what family life is like, yeah. you know. Um, so, so, uh, so, so it seemed to me that it was moving, trying to move towards an understanding, but also trying to to show how much um, can never be resolved. So, you know, th- there's a difference, between, and, and, and this is true in essays also between what is aesthetically resolved and what's actually resolved. So you can you can tackle a very important subject and, and know that you'll never solve it, but 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 you've taken the reader through an arc of, of a, an attempt to understand it, and that should be sufficient. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope people would feel at the end. Like, okay, these two have been in the uh, boxing ring for long enough. They've, been, they've, they've mm-hmm. traded blows, and this is as much understanding as they're going to get mm-hmm. out of it. When you say that you were started to see the chapters as episodes, yeah. so you've transcribed this. Were you you transcribing it on your computer? Yeah. And so you had this file with all this information in there. Yeah. Is this in your head that you just started to see? Did you, did you diagram or did you? How do you? How did you begin to start to shape that or cut away? A lot of it was implicit in the tapes. That is, my mother. Um, had made a story out of her life, and she would tell it like chapters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it had to do with um, moving material around a little bit, you know. Um, in any case, it just seemed like um, I needed some space breaks. I needed some chapter headings, you know. Um, and some of them were like ironic commentaries on what would follow. So in terms of the shaping, the note that I just turned to actually kind of reflects that. This is at the end I think of the prologue and you say why you're talking about the listening to the tapes and the stories mm-hmm. and the stories that people tell why those dozen and not a hundred others that might have proven equally significant right. I am tempted to say that the signature of one's personality resides in just which recollected vignettes one chooses to keep retelling and that's the last line right. of the prologue and I just had to know that that really sets up the, the book but it's also Related to what you're saying about the choosing the shape, yeah, I mean, uh, I do think that's true. Like so much happens to us, and and the stories that we tell over and over again are not necessarily the most important things that happen to us, but somehow they're 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 characteristic of something that we want to assert, you know. Um, and so, uh, instead of beginning uh, the narrative of uh, Mother's Tale when she was a baby and when she was born, she begins with the period when her father's dying, when she was about 10 years old, and she's called in uh, to the deathbed of her father, and, 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 
an urge to to call him back so that thinking that because he was her favorite that that he would somehow rouse himself and decide to live or something like that mm-hmm. uh and 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 to her this is like this 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 key uh, memory that uh encapsulates uh, the 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 resentment she had against her her sisters for putting this pressure on her and also her own sense of guilt and and ultimately something that kept her back from being a performer, which she later uh, turned out to be a singer and a, uh, an actress, um, because she had failed her father at this moment. So it's a very self-serving story. And, and I thought on some level it was uh, baloney. Um, I'm, sure that it, I'm sure that it was a, a key moment her father died, but I, I, I felt like she'd never... She'd been too hard on her sisters for for their saying that, you know, uh, say something, you know, because uh, people get desperate when somebody's dying. And, you know, there is this kind of um, superstition around, you know, uh, if the, if somebody hears the voice of a loved one, they'll, they'll, they'll mm-hmm. rouse themselves. Um, so I felt she was unfair to her. her uh, uh, I felt she was unfair to her uh, siblings, and I also felt that she was using... Uh, this is a rationalization for why it had taken her so long to become a performer. Um, and, and But it was a story that suited her in many ways, you know. Um, and it was a story that she told many times, you know. Uh, so what are, what are the key vignettes that we decide uh, to tell over and over again to, to give people a, a narrative? You know, uh, it's been said about psychotherapy that psychotherapy... Um, provides you with a terrible myth of your life. You know? <laughs> so, if nothing else, you know, um, you, you, you begin to possess a narrative uh, in the face of all this randomness and, and fragmentation. Uh, so she possessed a narrative, and she had been in therapy, actually. Um, and so I'm sure that at some point uh, she'd had one of those aha moments, like, you know, aha, it all goes back to the time I was, you know, by the deathbed of my father, and 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 such aha moments um, can be quite satisfying, but they don't necessarily mean all that much. Mm-hmm. So I, as the uh, receiver of all this uh, this this narrative, um, uh, had to had to elicit it, but also um, had to challenge it. In the process of editing that, and there was a note that I had in here there was a point where she's telling a story and then um, you interrupt it and then she goes back to the story and right. when she continues the story she says anyway yes and and so I wondered about that and transition had you broken up her dialogue yes. and decided oh this would be I, tr- I tried to I mean it was on the tape and I tried to get uh-huh. her to understand it was a key moment where I tried to under- get her to understand that not only had we had we as kids um Understood and appreciated her her misery and her suffering, but that you know we we were so imbued with it that we had to to fight to develop our own personalities and our own uh, our own destinies, you know. And she listens to it and she says, "Anyway, you know, like <laughs> enough about you. Back to me, you know." <laughs> and it is that joke about the actress saying, mm-hmm. "You know, um, enough about me. What do you think of my performance?" You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so she 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 picked up the, she picked up the story. You know, this was her, as I said in the prologue, this was her 
her chance for her close-up, you know? Yeah. They, I have a note here of a scene that I wrote. Love this scene. Um, and I'll read a little bit of it. When she found out at last about the pregnancy rumors her family had spread, she was so deeply ashamed and hurt that she tried to kill herself, went ahead and took an overdose of sleeping pills. Right. Because I felt there was no purpose, I would have to cut and run. I just didn't want to face it again. I didn't want to live. I felt there was nothing left, but Daddy got me out of it. He made me walk. He stuck me in the shower. I was completely oblivious to anything that went on that night. He took me out with a bunch of friends to this diner. We were sitting way in the back, and I kept falling over on the table. There were two other couples, and he kept saying, sit up, sit up. I said to him, you're always telling me to lie down, and now you're telling me to sit up. And I just love this, and even though, you know, it's... It's, funny. it's sad at the beginning, she tried, but she makes she even herself makes a story out, and you you write on that this is, becomes a family saying. Yeah, she was a good storyteller, mm-hmm. and she could, and she, and that became a family saying. But then, uh, just a little past that passage, um, after all, uh, she she take she she'd been humiliated and ashamed because of a false rumor that she had been pregnant when she ran away mm-hmm. from home, and and my father had basically saved her life. Uh, but she couldn't allow that. She couldn't give him the credit for that. She said, well, maybe he was just trying to, I don't know, uh, show off or something like that. She had a very hard time uh, appreciating that she was loved. She would always sort of uh, uh, doubt it, you know. Um, and that was part of what gave her this this strength, like, I'll go my way by myself. But it also made it a difficult person, certainly, to have as a mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and I, I thought my father had acted quite heroically, but she didn't want to grant him that, you know. Mm-hmm. He saved her life. Yeah. So she she had this war with my father where she always tried to act like he, he had messed her up and messed up her whole life, you know, which is what happens in some marriages, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So in speaking of your father, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I believe that the first time we hear his full name is when she's telling the story of how she met him mm-hmm. in the book. And I wondered, I was like, oh, I've, that's the first time I heard his name. And I was like, oh, she's telling the story. Right. Was that something that you strategically thought about? or No, didn't didn't occur to me at all. Just seemed to, to come up when it came up. Yeah. The book to me is a combat in a way, you know? It's like mm-hmm. being, being in, a, in a war zone and there are all these snipings going on, but but um, obviously, in many ways, my whole sense of um, storytelling, my sense of humor, was shaped by my mother. So we had mm-hmm. so much in common, you know. Mm-hmm. That was part of the problem. You know, Freud talks about the narcissism of small differences. We were very similar mm-hmm. in many ways, you know. Mm-hmm. What do you think you learned about writing from crafting this book? It's the kind of book that somebody um, who's written a lot of books um, and tried to prove himself but is now entering the elderly, old age <laughs> stage um, will say, you know, I don't have anything more to prove. I'm just going to do this because I think it, uh, it it interests me, you know. Uh, so uh, sometimes you'll see uh, in, in the late late period of a writer's life, they'll 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 do an odd book, you know, something that's very odd, because they don't they don't really feel uh, they feel like they they've earned the right to to do something. And in this case, I wanted um, to 
as I said earlier, to to put on the page something that felt real, something that felt uh, raw, the kind of thing that you couldn't invent. You know, they often say you can't make this stuff stuff up. A lot of the particularities of my mother's memory are things that I could never have remembered. Um, you know, her working in the candy store, her working in a factory. Um, and, and so one of the things I learned was also I got closer to the history because in some ways it really is like um, watching a woman go through all those, through the 20th century. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I knew some of it vaguely, but there I was, you know, uh, right, you know right with her. Um, and and that, that was very exciting to me. I will just say that the older I get, the more I get interested in history, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and history starts to become more alive to me. So stuff that that she was reporting on, uh, what was it like to go through World War Two? What was it like for for people who returned from concentration camps to be in the neighborhood? You know, uh, you know, like like um, she she was running a candy store then, and she says that these these people who had been in concentration camps or DP camps would be returning, and uh, and she didn't necessarily um, feel compassion for them because they were often very annoying because suffering doesn't always make you a nicer person. Yeah, she talks about how the people in the neighborhood would were, were annoyed, yeah. as you said. Yeah. yeah, so all of that, all of those particulars were fascinating to me. So I learned, I learned, I learned something about that. I think, I think, you know, part of the problem of being a, a male writer writing about women is that, you know, you you often feel you can only get so close, you know. And this gave me the chance to get closer than I'd ever gotten to a female character, you know, um, and to understand some of the the deep-seated resentment sometimes that women have against men, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which a man can never quite understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in your book, you, you make a joke at the end, and maybe it's not really a joke, where you said you're of the positive reinforcement uh, yes. uh, school for husbands. <laughs> yeah, the positive reinforcement school is... If your husband does the dishes, don't tell him he's done them all wrong, but say, good job, you know, and hope that he'll do it again, you know? <laughs> so I want to give a big thanks to Philip Lopate for being interviewed for the article in The Writer Magazine and for this special edition two-part podcast. The next episode that you hear, episode 50, will be part two with Philip Lopate. Remember, if you are in the Lancaster area, check out the Hippocampus Conference. It's a conference for creative nonfiction writers run by Hippocampus Magazine, the great Donna Tallarico, who is who I want to be when I grow up. Check her out. And if you are going to go to the conference, I have a special treat for you behind the pros discount courtesy of Hippocampus Magazine. That discount is Perose 50, P-R-O-S-E 5-0. That code will get you $50 off the registration and you should hurry because at this moment, which is around noon on August 20th, there are only 17 seats left for full registration. So log on to the website, hippocampusmagazine.com hippocampusmagazine.com and if you want to go directly to the conference page 
hippocampusmagazine.com slash conference. And there you will find a link to registration and all the great speakers that will be there behind the pros will be there on Saturday, August 25th. I will be interviewing Crystal Sital. I hope I'm saying her last name right. She is the author of a memoir, Secrets We Kept, Three Women of Trinidad. It is a literary memoir. And when I say literary, I mean literary. Crystal's use of language is amazing. And I am excited to talk to her. I hope maybe you'll be able to be there in person if you're going to join me at Hippocampus with your $50 off discount. Lastly, I want to encourage you, if you have enjoyed this episode, if you are enjoying any of the episodes of Behind the Pros, please visit BehindThePros.com and look for our link to GoFundMe. And I've started a GoFundMe campaign to raise $8,000. That is enough money to cover it. Uh, to cover a year of operating expenses, including upgraded ones like paying someone to do the transcriptions and maybe produce the audio once in a while. So if you have ever enjoyed Behind the Pros, I thank you for listening and would greatly appreciate it if you donate anything to our cause. It will immediately be put to use, starting with covering annual fees for web services and the like. There's a benefit to you as well. If you check out our GoFundMe page, you will see the special uh, bonuses, thank yous that people who do do a one-time donation will receive. So go to BehindTheProse.com and look for our GoFundMe link on the right sidebar. Thanks for rocking with me another week. I will be back with the episode part two, part two of Philip Lopate's interview. After that, I will be bringing you portions of the conference from my interview with Crystal Sital. Also, if you're behind the proser, remember you can get $50 off of the last 17 remaining seats as of around 12 noon. <laughs> On a Monday, August 20th, the code is PROSE50, P-R-O-S-E-5-0. Behind the Pros music is by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud. The show is hosted, produced by me, Keisha Whitaker, from a table outside of Philadelphia, but inside an apartment outside of Philadelphia. Until next time, listen, learn, and write.